Welcome to Trailblazing Entrepreneurs, the new podcast series from Salesforce App Exchange. In this series, we chat to world-class entrepreneurs and founders and explore their journey as well as share practical insight into their journey to be successful businesses. I'm your host, Sandra Peña, Director of the ISV Business at Salesforce. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Max Michael Meyer, who is the CEO of ISV App. ISV App is an application analytics software company based in Germany. So Max, thank you so much for joining me today on our fourth episode. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure being here today. You're very welcome. We are very delighted to have you. So first of all, I know that this is a podcast and uh, listeners can see you or me, but you have a fantastic background with a lot of guitars in the back. That's awesome. Tell me about more about this. <laughs> well, actually, uh, I play, play guitar since probably 35 years. Um, and <clears throat> since uh, uh, business was so intensive for the last few years, I didn't have time to play live anymore. So I convinced my wife to cancel the guest room in the house and uh, build a complete studio in it. And as a guitar player, there's uh, something which is called gas, gear acquisition syndrome, which means you cannot stop buying guitars. Yeah, there's always one guitar which you want to have in addition. I stopped recently because I don't have uh, space on the walls anymore. Yeah. Ah, that's, 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 that is really cool. I didn't know about that syndrome. I heard about the tattoo syndrome. Once you start, you don't stop. I wasn't aware of the guitar one. That's, that's a new one for me. And to be fair, I was expecting to see bikes as well because I know you're a massive kin uh, cyclist. Oh, well, you did some research. Impressive, yeah. <laughs> I did. Well, actually, uh, <laughs> there's no, no, no place in this or no space in this uh, room here to have all my bikes in there. I do mountain biking, downhill biking, road biking, uh, you name it. Uh, so that's, that's uh, another passion of mine. That's true. I was following what you were doing on Instagram and it looks like you've done some really awesome trips there. So you train as a banker and now you're the co-founder of a couple of uh, technology companies. Tell us about uh, your journey and what it's been like. Well, we probably don't want to talk about the last 30 years because that's when I started uh, my work career as a banker. But let's pick some stations on that way, which probably helped me to be what I am today. And that's um, probably the fact that I am in, in, in cloud computing or in software as a service since the early 2000s, working on projects with Accenture. And then for larger IT companies, some of them are probably known like Conject or Aconex. Aconex is the Australian construction exchange, which is a collaboration platform for large real estate projects, obviously completely in the cloud. And I had the pleasure to work with those companies. And this also gave me the opportunity to come up with an, my own idea because I spent quite a, some time, a few years in the Middle East, working out of Dubai and uh, had a lot of clients in the financial industry who also had real estate developers as their clients. And uh, I, I saw how they tried to market their projects and I thought, hey, there, there, there has to be a better way of doing this uh, with a backend system called CRM these days, what we're talking about 2008. So there was not really an industry solution. And that gave me the, the idea to start another venture, which is called Property Base, which I did for the last 10 years. And that's actually um, a real estate CRM on force.com. And uh, we've grown the business to 200,000 monthly active agents in 60, over 60 countries and uh, have bought some companies on the way. And then the company property base has been 
sold to a private equity fund just in order to make it even more bigger to do a roll up. And I have left the company. I moved to the board, like people say, that means you don't have to do anything anymore. And coming to my, my current venture, this is actually a very nerdy kind of th uh, business because it analyzes usage for Salesforce apps. Small market, niche market, but it's absolutely amazing because you, you talk to founders one-to-one -one because they know what we're talking about and, and it's, it's totally easy to understand how, how ISV app works. And for the, all the Salesforce ISV partners, it's a benefit because uh, the first in time, actually, they see the actual usage of their application, the adoption throughout their customer base, and can understand what accounts are probably at risk and might be churning in the future and can act accordingly. So there is uh, also not only an added value from a product perspective, but also a, a real return of investment from this application. So you mentioned that you saw a gap in the market. You looked at an idea and to use your word, you said there must be a better way. How did you validate the idea? You know, where did you go to? What was your process there? Very different than um, if you start a venture and you have to come up with a uh, product where you have to check if there's a market fit. Uh, in this case, actually, it, it, it was clear to me for 10 years that the product is definitely a fit because I, I was running my own company, Property Base, which was completely built on Forest.com and we never had any insights about the usage of the application. We didn't even know our users. And since we have tried many, many, let's say, legal and illegal hacks in order to get the data from the Salesforce platform, I know from all the other partners that I've ever talked to, they have all the same problem. And Salesforce... <laughs> I think probably the, the best confirmation that there is a market fit was when, when I talked to Brian Cochorn and, and his App Exchange team and they said, hey, we're coming up out with a new API just to support uh, the needs of our partners and, and come up with usage data. And I said, okay, if you guys build an API, then there's definitely a market. I don't have to check anything. I don't have to do a market research anymore. Yeah, so it's, it's based on my personal experience, talking to other partners, and then uh, the last confirmation for, came from you guys. Yeah, so... Was a, was a, was a no-brainer. <laughs> we made it a bit easier for you, that's, that's for sure. Just you mentioned at the beginning that you went to Dubai and then you saw a gap and you said that, you know, software as a service was pretty new then. What challenges did you face? You know, SaaS was pretty new. If you think about Salesforce time, you know, 20 years ago, that was a pretty new concept. Did you face the same challenge to convince people that SaaS was the way forward? If we're talking about the early 2000s, uh, then it was definitely a need to explain cloud computing to or software as a service to companies and, and educate them about the benefits. You have to think about actually, that was still the time where application service providing was the way to go. But in 2008 and 2009, when I started Property Base, software as a service was already known. Salesforce was a, a brand in the market. There was no need actually to convince people to go to uh, software as a service. It was totally clear for them. Probably not as much as today, but the industry had understood actually that this is the way to go. So there must be also challenges you saw commonly faced by software as a service company because you obviously you're an active advisor to quite a few SaaS companies. Is there any common themes that you see when you advise those companies? Well, I think the situation with startups depends on which stage they are. In the early stage, you have to prove that you have to have a, a market fit. Uh, revenue, customers is not so much important. It's also not so much about your pricing structure. What you have to have in place is, is a product which people like, they're willing to pay money for, and they're happy to give a testimonial. Uh, so once we're coming later to that 
seed stage or series A stage, we will talk about financing, then obviously you have to prove that you can scale that coming from, let's say, five customers up to 15, up to 30. And once we're talking about then any anything which is above seed and you want to raise significant money, then this money has to go right into sales and marketing. At this stage, investors need to see that you can grow the business with their money. So if, if companies or if investors give you a few million in that stage, they expect you not to rebuild the product or to find out what exactly the market wants. That has to be clear at this point of time. And then it's all about scaling, finding out what is the right sales approach, inbound, outbound, what's the right marketing strategy. That's the money which you need for. And once you have figured out how that works, then it's just, I mean, putting more money on top of that because you have the machine set up and you just make it even bigger. And I guess maybe if you think about the different stages, you talk about pre-seed and then seed and then series A's and going forward. Would you say you have to apply different tactics? What advice would you give to an entrepreneur as a whole that you know has secured a little bit of funding to start with and are looking for the next stage of growth? Let's first talk about uh, the financing. My advice to founders is uh, get as much money as possible in every time. <laughs> uh, it, it sounds simple, but look, we have we have Corona here, and uh, no one expected that in February. Uh, what we happened in the last what happened in the last three months, and that this is probably an extreme scenario, but you can come up with different uh, situations where you have money and you have a plan, and you know actually the money has been burned until then, and then something happens, whatever this is. So you have to have still money in the pocket. There has to be some reserves, so to say. And how do you get reserves? You have to make a business plan, which allows you to get so much money and even more that you can raise the next round without com coming un under pressure. That's the most difficult thing. If you're running out of time and you only have a few months left, And then you start with your process. That's, by the way, another advice. Start the fundraising process as early as possible. Sometimes you might be lucky to close something within three months, but the average, you should always plan for six months. You go on the road tour, you talk to people. And that's probably the other advice. Fundraising is very similar to, uh, to sales. The customers don't come to you. You have to go to the customers and you have to call as many as possible in order to close deals. That's the same thing with financing. You have to call every single investor which comes to your mind. There are lots of good databases uh, which even allow you to, to narrow down whether they are a fit or not and then do your pitches. The more you do, the more likely you will find someone in the end who is willing to give you money. And it's funny you mentioned that because uh, in our previous episode, we were talking uh, with uh, Victoria from Frazy and she talked about that was a little bit like a speed dating or, you know, I think I used an expression, you know, you have to kiss, you know, many frogs to, to find the investors that uh, will be ready to sort of invest in you, believe in you and help you along the way. Is that a, something you found with yourself? You know, you had to go and kiss many frogs and until you find the right fit for you? I have been lucky actually in my life. So um, <laughs> so to say, I, don't, I didn't have to kiss any frogs. <laughs> yeah. um, Good for you. <laughs> but there are differences actually between investors. There are the, let's say, the, the professional ones and then the more not so professional ones. And then there are the private ones. Yeah, And you have to be, I mean, I'm not saying careful, but 
It really depends. If you are someone who has experience running a business already, then you probably want to have an investor where you can collaborate with and you don't want to have someone who is sitting in your board and tells you how to do the business. Because you are the entrepreneur, it's your idea, you have to run it. And I think since the financial industry, when it comes to venture capitalists, and private equity fund, private equity fund is probably was for, for, the, for the later stage, but uh, the VCs, that scene is not so big. That's probably the other thing I recommend, get some references. I mean, you, you find a lot of information on the web, but then go and call some of the companies this, this VC has invested in. Talk to the founder and say, what's, what's your experience? That's probably a good filter to avoid kissing the frog. I guess it's the bit of the analogy that you mentioned earlier, which is treat your investment like you would do any sales, isn't it? You know, do your research, you know, get the right pitch, go as broad as you possible in the early stages to increase your chances and the likelihood of, of fundings. I know you've invested in quite a, a lot of companies from different sectors. So as an investor, what are the things you're looking for? And I guess what's really interesting for me is, do you look at the entrepreneur or the enterprise or the business when you choose to invest? Well, actually, I, obviously you have to look at, the, at both, but um, the way how it works is you look at the idea and you say, okay, that makes sense to me. I think there is a market. And then the second thing you do right away immediately, you look at the team. I don't invest in companies where you only have one founder. It has to be several ones. Those founders have to have different competencies. It does not matter if people have a large experience and a working career, it's more important that they that you understand that they know what, what their experts are. For example, one of my startups came right out of the university, no working experience at all, but they have done intensive research and, and a big scientific project actually in a specific AI topic. So they, they really had the experience. Also, the team doesn't have to be complete uh, for example, most likely with the founder team, you don't have an expert in sales and marketing, but that's that's okay because at the beginning, the founders, if they are the IT experts, the product experts, whatever, they're able to sell them, sell the first, let's say the first deals. And once that has been done, you can hire other people which are doing sales and marketing. I have to see the fire. The people have to be really, they have to stand behind their idea. And they really have to be eager to build the business up. That's one thing. The other thing I want to see is, is there one of them who could be the CEO, let's say, to bring the company to a size of 50, 100 people, or meaning the first 5 million of revenue? If that's not the case, then it's going to be difficult. I would say when we're talking about the range 5 million to 10 million and upwards, you probably need a different kind of CEO, which is totally okay. You, know, you can get those people from the market and the actual founder CEO is then the chief strategy officer or whatever because then it's really about scaling the whole thing and you cannot expect that that a founder with almost no business experience knows how to scale a business let's say from 5 million to 50 million going from 0 to 1 million that's easy going from million to 5 million you still have to have this leadership team in place so not only the CEO if I can correct myself here now, but also people who are capable of where you think they're capable of operating the business. 
and building up an organization. And that's really interesting. So when you invest and how far down the line do you look? Do you say, okay, I'm going to look at the first five years and this is the right team? Or do you sort of project a little bit further? And, and does this then mean that you take different strategy for a business in terms of investment for you? When it comes to team, like I said before, it's just important that I can see that those the founder team that I believe they can grow the company to a couple of million of revenue. I'm, I, I'm not looking further down the road because that's that's not predictable. That's too far in the future because we're talking about the several years ahead. The other thing I, I want to stress is actually uh, the market size. Um, this is something where I think you have to have a lot of fantasy, meaning if your market is smaller than the billion, whatever currency, dollars, euros, doesn't matter, a billion, it's probably... I mean, if there's no competition, then there's a problem at all because uh, you don't know if, if there's really a market. And if there is competition, what percentage from the market you can get? Yeah, The larger the market, the better it is. It doesn't have to be just one story. It could be several stories. Look at Salesforce. That was all, first the CRM story. Now here's the everything story uh, platform. And we, uh, we are the business platform for um, the whole enterprises. And this expands the market. This, this vision has to be in place right at the beginning so that you can say, okay, if that works, then we can probably expand into that space and that space and that space. And that opens up another pocket uh, of revenue for you. And that gives you the, let's say, the fantasy that you probably can build up a business here, which doesn't have to stop at 10 million revenue. It probably doesn't have to stop at 100. So it can even go above. So just switching gear a little bit, the company you founded in 2010, you know, Property Base, has been acquired by Providence Equity. And so obviously you had a very successful exit strategy. What would you say were the key tips for a successful exit strategy? First of all, you always have to keep in mind you're not selling a company, you're getting bought. Think about what that means. That means you cannot go out there and tell everyone, hey, I'm selling my company. You probably find someone who says, I I'm going to buy you, but you're not getting a good price. So you have to be attractive for others and then they have to approach you. And you, you, you were hesitant then to say, yeah, I'm not really sure, whatever. And then you start a negotiation for the, uh, for the company price. That's probably one thing. Uh, the other thing, make your homework. What does that mean? There are probably two things. Get familiar with a selling buying process, a typical M&A process. If uh, you can do a lot of research, talk to people who have done this before. I think that's probably the most uh, useful source what kind of experience they have have made. So the other thing when I mentioned or when I when I talk about homework, it means uh, you have to get your numbers right. And I can tell you, I had a very very own hard experience uh, in my my selling process. So what does it mean? Um, we're talking about a software as a service company. You have subscriptions, and subscriptions are getting calculated as MRR, monthly recurring revenue. And your accounting has to understand that. And I can tell you there is a huge complexity, especially if you were having a business build up with entities, legal entities in different countries. You charge the customers in, in, in various currencies. You have fees to pay for the currencies. You have payment gate fees and so on. That means the amount on the invoice is never the one which you get in your account, which makes it really hard for the accountants to understand what should I book actually here. And then the most important point is um, you have to make 
those numbers transparent because that saves you a lot of time and especially money during the due diligence. Because if you if you haven't done this before, you can pay a lot of money for KPMG and others in order to help you because you're, you're not be able to have to set up those or to clean up those numbers in that short period of time. So you have to pay others to do this and um, that probably raises questions on the, on the buyer side and you want to avoid this. So if your business is subscription-based, but even if not, you have to get your accounting numbers, your financial numbers right and transparent, and you have to be able to drill down in the numbers so that you can answer questions. The more you have to tell the buyer, hey guys, I, I have to drill down myself, I can give you the answers, the more question marks come up and I've seen deals actually not happening just because of that, although the business was good. Yeah, and and it's really interesting what you said, because one thing that when we spoke to a few other founders is they mentioned that when it came to attract funding and, and possibly doing a, a successful exit, what they find really useful is to deal with people that are used to invested in SaaS company. Was that your experience too, to the point you made? They really understood how to allocate costs. They were familiar with MRR concept. Is that right? Well, that, 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 that's funny that you're asking this because I, I've seen this almost in every startup. Um, if you have, let's say, uh, several investors, uh, including uh, business angels or institutional ones, there's always one or several who don't understand MRR, ACV, annual recurring revenue. They don't understand the difference between booked revenue and backlog and, and all that stuff. So in all of my the companies I'm invested in, I recommend the, recommended it to the founders or they, they came up with the idea by themselves. We have a definition of the terms. And this definition actually is applied to every quarterly report to make sure that we're not having misunderstandings. Because I've seen board meetings where people were talking about numbers, but one guy thought it's that and the other ones thought it's that so that, that, that that's not helpful yeah uh, it's interesting actually that you still see people are not really educated about those uh, let's call it the software as a service financial terms yeah but it still happens would that be the biggest advice you give to a, an entrepreneur today know your numbers well yes but th this is a, this is what i say that that's that's homework know your numbers is, is that's a necessity uh, i think the most important thing is actually show your passion be passionate about your business belief on your business and have a vision where do you want to go from here to there in the future i think that's probably the biggest one because the, the belief itself helps you to overcome a lot of other problems yeah if you have doubts about your product or your business or the market then you cannot be in the position to convince others to give, give you money because if you don't believe it, why should others? Max, thank you so, so much for chatting with me today and thank you for joining us on our fourth episode. If you have any questions or topic you want to hear about, tweet us at App Exchange. I'll be back soon with some more insights, so make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.